you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Although the uh, text that I am preaching on this morning is rather short, you should still open your Bibles there because we'll be looking at several passages within 1 Corinthians, which I trust will become uh, clear as to the reason why in a few moments. Let's pray. Father, there is so much for us to be grateful for. And again, Lord, as we live in a time that is at least described as being uncertain, we do have the certainty of knowing the truth, of knowing who you are, of having an understanding of the future, what the future really holds, and how things are going to play out and how they're going to end. And for that, we are grateful. It gives to us, Father, a great sense of security. It gives to us a great sense of certainty. It gives to us, Father, a great sense of comfort. We thank you, Father, for being reassured of your presence and your love for us. And that in the end, there is nothing that is out of the control of your hand. We readily admit, Lord, that there is much that goes on that we don't understand. There is also much that goes on that we don't like. But, Father, we do trust you. Because you know, Lord, that you've proven yourself to be trustworthy in so many ways. We ask, Lord, you forgive us for trusting our own opinion more than we trust you. And we ask, Lord, that you would feed our hearts and our souls this morning by your word. Again, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the verse we're going to look at today, which is very short, reads in verse 1 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. And it would seem that the meaning there is very obvious. And I will admit to you that through the years, I have immediately launched uh, on, into all kinds of things as to what this means and what Paul is talking about. Uh, the idea that uh, Paul was an exemplary Christian, uh, that as Christians we are to imitate his habits, his discipline, that as Christians, we should be reading the scripture. Uh, that as Christians, we need to make sure that we never hold a grudge. We need to make sure that we're ready to forgive. And you can go on with a long list of things that we should be doing as believers in the imitation of Paul. However, I think I missed the boat. All those things are true, but that is not what Paul meant. Paul meant something, I believe, very specific. And because this is, statement is just kind of just seems to be just kind of placed here in the middle of the text, we have to take a few moments to kind of reflect on Paul's letter, what he is intending to communicate, and then looking at this in the, in the immediate and the broader context of the letter. And I think when we do that, it becomes more clear as to what Paul was talking about specifically here. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, appears at the close of this discussion that Paul was uh, given into when it came to this division over eating meat that had been previously offered to idols. We've talked a lot about that, uh, not only about that itself, but how that applies to the time which we live in. But basically, those who were strong members of the church or strong believers, uh, uh, they were eating meat that were sacrificed to idols. They didn't have any problem with it. Those who were weaker believers, maybe perhaps newer believers, uh, they believed that eating meat offered to idols did have religious significance 
and uh, they believed they were kind of maybe being forced to partake, and therefore they believed that not only what they were doing was questionable, but that maybe that they were involved in sinning. And somehow that they were kind of adopting this idea that uh, we, we kind of participate in, in everything and, and uh, somehow that they were denying God. And so there was a problem there that was in the church. Now, Paul does agree with the strong believers. Their assessment of the meat that were sacrificed to idols, basically, in theory, had no ultimate spiritual significance. He does argue that the principle of self-denial for the good of others does take priority. So again, he takes the side of those who are stronger and says their assessment of this whole deal with meat, that they're correct, but at the same time addresses them and says that one of the priorities in their life should be that as we live our lives as Christians, uh, there will be times that we're called upon to practice self-denial, basically giving up your right or giving up your freedom, whatever the case may happen to be, for the sake of another person. And that can be really hard for us as Americans because we're not used to doing that. People in other countries that, that they don't, you know, they're not, they don't look at freedom and view freedom. They don't possess freedom to the degree that we do. And so their view, I believe, would be very different. But for us, because it's one of the greatest things that we value, we put a lot of, lot of worth in that, it becomes difficult. Um, I know that for some, when it comes to the whole idea of wearing masks, you know, that's part of the issue is other people forcing me to do something I believe I shouldn't have to do. And I may even have a bunch of reasons why, but we don't like that. Not about you, but I know that goes through my mind. And it, sometimes it really irks me when that takes place, but you know, it's because I, I really love freedom and being able to make up my mind to do what I think is best, period. But when it comes to living our lives as Christians, it should be really part of our makeup. Should it even become habitual for us to think in terms of other individuals what's going on in their life and what I do or do not do that may affect them spiritually. When you look at chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul shifts really from discussing this principle of self-denial to denouncing idolatry and, and points out the obvious that uh, participating in idolatry is being unfaithful to God. He does then go back into the Old Testament, points out how God dealt with those who were unfaithful, that uh, he destroyed many of the Israelites even after he had rescued them from Egypt. And that should stand as a warning against our presumption on God uh, and unfaithfulness. In other words, we should not look back and say, well, because the Lord has blessed me so much, then it's clear and then we kind of fill in the blank. We, we don't want to presume that we know what God's going to do or that certain things may not be important when they are. And Paul points that out. So he ends chapter 10 Looking at verse 31, it reads this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So in this concluding paragraph here, uh, and this, after this lengthy discussion on idol meat, basically, Paul emphasizes the salvific intentions of his behavior. In other words, the good or the advantage or the benefit that Paul seeks for all persons is their salvation. 
that is a priority for him. He wants that to be a priority for them. When you look at the lives of other individuals, you and I are the vessel that God has chosen to carry the message of Christ. We are the vessel that God has chosen to proclaim the message of Christ. That is the responsibility of the church, meaning that is the responsibility of every individual believer because we are the church. And so this idea here of our accommodating our behavior for the benefit of others is so that we will not hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul wants these Corinthians to consider the repercussions of their actions, not only for people within the church, but again, for those outside the church. And we know that there's a consistency there because when you look at, for example, the qualifications for an elder or the qualifications for a deacon, one of the qualifications is that person has a good reputation both inside and outside the church. Meaning both among believers and among non-believers, that individual has a good reputation. They're, they're known for being hardworking, honest, upright, religious or godly, depending on that person's perspective. But the idea is that there's a, a consistency in our character. We are to be blameless. We are to be inoffensive in our relationship to others. Now again, that doesn't mean that we're going to avoid offending anyone at any cost for the sake of just being polite or civil peace. We don't want to kind of wrestle this out of its context and just kind of use it as a, as a you know, a, a blank recipe or, or a, a power play or a billy club to kind of get people to, to do what we think they should do. The idea here is specifically that we do not want to be offensive for the sake of Christ or for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of its progress. So that's why then maybe in certain discussions, there may be with certain individuals, certain topics I won't go into because I know already there's not only going to be a disagreement, but I fear that the disagreement is going to lead to them not hearing or accepting the gospel because of the problem they have with me over this issue, whatever that issue may happen to be. So I'm not going to go there. So for example, if I'm talking to a non-believer and let's say they're all worked up about the mask thing and I'm all worked about the mask thing, but we're on opposite sides. But that person's not a believer. Do I want to upset that individual in trying to win the argument with him about mask? And then later on, when I, when, when I may have an opportunity to speak to them about the gospel, they don't want to hear it. I need to think that way. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to defend my position on mask. I'm going to downplay it. I'm going to soft play it. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to suddenly say, well, I'm not going to lie and say, oh yeah, I think the president should mandate everybody wear a mask. I'm not going to go there, but I'm not going to make that a point of contention. Uh, in fact, I might even not even allow the individual to know where I stand. I might just change the subject, but again, not because I'm afraid to talk about it because I'm not afraid to talk about it, but my concern should be for their soul. And, th and that's how we need to approach life as Christians. Remember that this life is not all there is. This time which we live in is not the only time that we're to be concerned about. Remember that we belong to another, which is Christ. And that is what is most important. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that we are not to become entangled in the things of the world. It doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion. He's not telling us that. 
But the idea again here as Paul is speaking, we need to have an, a, a great concern. We, we have been given responsibilities. You know, as Christians, we have a responsibility to our family, to take care of our family. You have a responsibility to love your spouse. You have a responsibility to, to do a lot of different things. But we also have a responsibility, a top priority, maybe an, one of the overarching responsibilities is that I am to, to be a, a, uh, a messenger for Christ. And so I want to make sure then as I'm fulfilling all my other responsibilities that that remains paramount and that I remain in a position where I can be used by God in that way. So that doesn't mean that you have to suddenly change your personality. Some of you might have to, maybe a few things, but it doesn't mean that there has to be this overhaul of who we are and it doesn't mean you have to change your political view of anything. But it may be that you have to change the way you express your political views. It may, have, it may bring about a change as to the way uh, whether or not you even express it in certain situations. Because what's of greater importance? And that is their soul. We need to remind ourselves that hell, again, is a real place. Judgment will take place. No matter how great a person is, if they have not trusted Christ, they're not going to go to heaven. Period. You can't pray an individual into heaven after they die. The only way to heaven is for them to understand and believe the message of Christ. That, that the second person of the Trinity has come to the world and took on flesh and lived among us. That's history. That's, that's the true story that we base everything on. That he lived a perfect life. And he did so knowing the whole while that he was going to be put to death. In fact, he came for that reason, knowing he would then be punished for our sin, that he would die a gruesome, horrible death, that he would be hated even by his own people. Remember that as they screamed for his crucifixion, there had to have been some there that were among the thousands that were fed miraculously with the loaves and the fish. There were those who had seen firsthand the miracles where he would heal people, whether it's of diseases or demonic possession. And yet here they were, following the, the lead of their leaders, screaming for him to be crucified. And then he was. And the Bible tells us that he didn't open his mouth. We know from some of the hymns that we sing, we, we, we kind of have this imagination that he could have called, there's that one song where he could have called 10,000 angels. Well, he could have, but he didn't. And that he willingly died for our taking on our punishment. So we then could be reconciled to God. And as the scripture says, he was buried. And then we know what seals it for us is that he was raised again the third day. And that's the message that we preserve. That's the message that we declare. So th this point of clarification then, as Paul elaborates what it means for Christians to be blameless in relation to others, again, he explains that their behavior should be parallel to his own. In verse 33 again of chapter 10, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own, but that of many, so that they may be saved. So again, this encouragement towards blamelessness by Paul, he believes that the church or this congregation should have an active missionary role. And again, that is the giving of the gospel that the corinthian christians must not only regulate their behavior to avoid offense 
but they must actively work for the building up of the church, for its maturing in Christ, and again, the multiplication of the church. So then again, in verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I am in Christ. This is not the standalone statement. It is not some ambiguous command. It is Paul's exhortation to evangelistically um, be motivated to self-denial. That's the imitation that he's talking about. In fact, what Paul is saying, I believe, is that Christ was a model for him and that Christ did not seek his own advantage, but that of others for their salvation. Because again, he says, imitate me as I am what? Of Christ. If you would turn to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, this passage closely parallels what Paul is saying there. Again, Paul discusses three groups. We mentioned these three groups that Paul is very concerned about in this letter. And those three groups are non-believing Jews, non-believing Greeks or non-believing Gentiles, and then weaker believers. He's very concerned for those three groups and, and he addresses them and talks about them and, and wants us to modify our behavior for their advantage. So then in verse 12 of chapter 9, and then I'll jump to verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So the picture here, I believe, is even clearer. That when Paul says he seeks to please all people, he's basically speaking of adjusting his behavior in inconsequential matters so as not to put an unnecessary barrier between a non-believer or maybe someone of questionable faith and the gospel. In the church's relationship with these groups, the non-believing Jews and Greeks in the weak, it is again an exercise with the, in the principle of self-denial and striving for other salvation. We sometimes maybe hesitate to use that kind of language because we're very uh, attuned to this idea of not working for salvation, that it's a gift, and that's true. But there is this idea, we are, we are to be soldiers for Christ, we are workers for Christ. And so there is this idea that I am working to attain the salvation of others. That doesn't mean that I earn their salvation for them, because I cannot. But the idea is that I am the instrument that God is seeking to use, and I am to put forth this effort to win them to Christ. That's what he desires. So this is not just a thing for missionaries, or for pastors, or for Paul. This is for all of us. Whether you are in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, whether you work on a construction site, you work in an office, we are always a Christian. We're always carrying around this message. We must always be thinking in terms of, of not doing certain things or doing certain things so that, again, there is no barrier to the message of Jesus Christ. It becomes pretty hard for that kid who, for example, claims he's a believer, he's in high school, and he's the bully of the school. Not a whole lot of evangelism is going to go on there. You know, or maybe he's one of those individuals who is you know, the sometimes bully, where you pick on, the little, on some kids everybody else is picking on. And you're mean to them. 
how are you going to share Christ with them, even if it's three or four years later? Remember, there was a young man that was in high school when I was, uh, this was back in the 90s. Uh, he was a young man who was a, a very popular young man. He was incredibly strong physically, very, very disciplined, didn't come from the best home, but he was a Christian. So he made it his goal. He, he didn't state it this way. You can just tell by his behavior. He made it his goal to pick out the most unpopular kids and the most least liked kids in high school. And he became their friend. He would walk up to them and he would say, I'm your friend. And he would defend them. And if kids would come and pick on them, he would come and stand in the way. And because of his physical prowess, word got out pretty quick. And that kid was safe the rest of the year. And everyone knew he was like that. Nobody messed with him. That's what a Christian does. See, if he's going to share the gospel of Christ, the door's already open. There's no obstacle to the gospel because of how he's, how he's using his life for the sake of others. That's the kind of things that we are to be involved in. In fact, preceding this passage that I just read, Paul had just finished speaking about renouncing his rights as, as, a, as an apostle among various groups for the ultimate purpose of winning others for Christ. You know, there's this, you know Paul had the right to accept money and to, and to earn his living by the sharing of the gospel. But in certain contexts, what he would do is he would refuse money from the believers and he would work because he wanted to make sure that maybe in that cultural setting, he understood that him taking this, this money would somehow hinder the message of Christ among the non-believers because they, they might view him as being one of those philosophers that walked around and took advantage of people uh, financially. And so in that situation, he would, he would make sure then uh, that he would work and earn his way just for the sake of the gospel. It didn't matter to him. In fact, some have said that when Paul writes this, Paul's anticipating the question, which is, Paul, why have you not demanded your own personal and apostolic rights? And that is not because he was a lesser apostle it and, or because he wasn't ultimately free to act according to his own conscience because he could. But again, everything he did, he did because of the gospel in order that he might save more people. Paul was not claiming that he saved people personally, but understood that he was the instrument that God was going to use. In fact, one commentator says this, Paul is describing the gospel as a dynamic force which he does not want to hinder through his insistence upon his apostolic rights. The gospel is in some sense depicted as an independent power which inevitably accomplishes God's will. One may hinder or further its advance, but its ultimate effectiveness is guaranteed. So he's not in any way hinting that the gospel is weak and that he will stop the advance of the gospel. That's not his point, but he can hinder the gospel. And I don't know about any of you, but I would never want to be in a situation where God sits down, me and another person, and then says, oh, by the way, Bob, you were a hindrance to this individual coming to know Christ. You can leave now while I talk to him. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that woman. You don't want to be the one who's hindering the work of Christ. And there's great joy in being used by Christ and others coming to him. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, which is the only other text, what's called the imitation text, where Paul overtly says this. I'll begin reading in verse 14. 
He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul had been kind of scolding these Corinthians for their adulation of certain leaders. They were kind of living in a world, the kind of world that we live in, where we celebrate worldly wisdom and uh, maybe someone's celebrity status. In contrast to the Corinthians, the apostles, who were the leaders of the church everywhere, they were threatened, they were viewed as fools, they were mocked as being weak, they were persecuted, they were even considered the rubbish of the world. In fact, that is the correct embodiment of Christian leadership. That is the kind of things that we should be embracing. It was typified by the apostles. Acceptance of worldly disapproval and suffering that Paul hopes his converts will imitate. That is what Paul is hoping for, that they will accept this idea. That is that, you know, don't get so caught up in wanting people to, to praise you that you allow this to kind of motivate you to be different. Embrace the fact that the world's going to hate you. It doesn't mean you try to make the world hate you. It doesn't mean that you throw a party because the world is, is dissatisfied with you. But we accept it. And we move on. Humility and the way of the cross are diametrically opposed to, and another commentator used this word, triumphalism, which is what the Corinthians were involved in, where there was excessive exaltation over someone's success or achievements, whether it was of another's or of yourself. So the persecution then that the apostles endure result from speaking openly the foolishness of the cross. For Paul, opposition and suffering are almost always related to his proclamation of the gospel. If they are to imitate Paul by enduring suffering, mocking and persecution, it is not suffering for just suffering's sake. For them, as for the apostles, their open adherence to the proclamation of the foolishness of the cross will result in the world's disapproval and opposition. This is one of the things that we just have to become accustomed to and expect as believers. One of the reasons why we should look forward to gathering together as believers is because we live in a world where we will often be mocked, where we will often be rejected along with the message that we carry. We gather together here amongst a group of people where we believe the same things, where we approve of the message of Christ, where we celebrate the following of Christ and the sharing of, of the message, knowing that we will receive strength from each other and strength from the word and, and prayer for each other and encouragement, especially if we're going through even a more difficult time at work or at home because of the gospel. And so this should be a place of refreshing. Are we coming from, the, you know, from, from wandering in the wilderness, so to speak, and we find an oasis? And this is to be that oasis. In, if you would turn to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul expected his converts again to uh, imitate him really in missionary activity, which is what we've been talking about. Again, the idea of this salvation-motivated self-denial. The apostle exhorts a believing spouse to live at peace with a non-believing one. Why? Because the ultimate goal of this behavior is not temporal harmony, but salvation. If you are married to a non-believer, it must be your goal to live your life in peace with your spouse for their salvation. There will be many rights that, you're, that you will need to give up until that time comes. 
It's important that we, that we are not a hindrance. And sad to say, I have no idea what the percentage is. As far as I know, no study's ever been done. But just as I've come across people in my life, it is not uncommon to find non-believing spouse, I mean, believing spouses who are married to non-believers who are a hindrance to the gospel by the way they treat their spouse. And, and so we, we need to get back to who do we belong to? Christ. What are our responsibilities? What is the priority of our responsibilities? Is that which is given to us by Christ. So we're reading in verse 12 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That is my rule in all the churches. So again, the idea here is if the unbeliever wants to remain, then they remain. If the unbeliever wants to leave, then you let them leave. And, and I think what's implied here is they don't want to be with a believer because they're a believer. This is not where you as a believer begin to nag your spouse and do all kinds of dirty things to them till they've had enough of you and they're leaving. And then you can say, well, I'm just suffering for the Lord. You know, my husband and my wife's a non-believer and they're leaving me because I'm a Christian. It's not why they're leaving you. They're leaving you because you're being a jerk. All right, so we need to make sure that we adopt the non-jerk rule as believing spouses in a marriage that's mixed and make sure that we're doing the right thing. But again, notice verse 16 where he asked the question, <coughs> excuse me, Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. So again, in this relationship, as in other relationships, the evangelistic concern of believers is assumed by Paul. He is assuming that that is a concern of yours. And it should be a concern. Paul does not write, Believing wife, you must desire, pray, and actively work for your husband's salvation. Active concern is assumed. Paul mentions the possibility of an already desired outcome, which is the salvation of the non-believing spouse, to encourage the Christian towards peaceful and self-sacrificial behavior. So again, you see that this theme begins to develop as you kind of go back and, and look at the book of 1 Corinthians and realize, I believe, more and more that when you get to the passage in verse 1, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, he is speaking specifically about his theme that is running through this, and that is to have a concern for the souls of the non-believers and the weak believers. In chapter 14, which we haven't come to yet, but turn there nonetheless, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, again, Paul has an assumption that Corinthians are concerned for non-believer salvation. Beginning in verse 23, he writes this, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So again, in this passage in chapter 14, 
Paul presupposes the Corinthians' desire for non-Christians to be convicted of sin and turn to the Lord in faith. And I do believe, just as a side note, one of the things that we can do as believers that will help uh, maybe the Spirit of God in convicting non-believers of their sin is when you and I do wrong, that we seek forgiveness from the non-believer. Not for things you haven't done now. I'm talking about when you've sinned against them. Ask them to forgive you. And, as, and I've mentioned this before, but if they kind of get maybe, they might even get uncomfortable and say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't a big deal. That's when you stop them. You say, no, no, no. It may not be a big deal to you, but, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. And it's a really big deal to God. Because, and then you just go ahead and tell them. Say, I, I, I would hate it if one day I had an opportunity to tell you what I believe, but you didn't want to hear me because this was hanging over our head. Just tell them. I guarantee you they'll be thinking about that a lot. They may not ask anything. They may not want to ask anything. But, you know, you've been pretty specific with that. And they're going to, and because they're not used to meeting individuals, and sadly, they're not used to meeting Christians that are that way. So to accomplish communication within the church meeting, uh, that communication needs to be intelligible so that the visiting non-believer then will hear the truth about his condition. So again, this building up that he talks about in the church obviously includes not only the edification of current believers, but again, the addition of new believers because it's non-believers who've attended this service. As believers admonish one another and uh, mix among outsiders, the church is built up through both maturation and multiplication. So we go back to verse 1 of chapter 11. Based on the immediate context and the broader context, Paul's specific meaning of imitation here is in the mission work or work of evangelism. Remember the three groups, non-believing Jews, non-believing Greeks, weak believers. So the question that you need to ask yourself is as you live your life as a Christian, have you consciously been thinking about the way that you live, the way that you act, the way that you treat others in relation to their salvation? Not necessarily the idea of in relation to is God pleased with me, and that's not a bad thing, but we're making it much more specific because remember that it is the will of God to use you in the life of that person. You may not be the one who ends up praying with them as they turn to Christ. You may be only one who plants. Can be, you can be anywhere on the spectrum. But you and I never meet anyone by accident. The people that we work with, we don't work with by accident. We believe in the sovereignty of God. And God desires you and I to have relationships with both believers and non-believers. And he desires you and I to be influenced by others, but he also desires that you and I influence others as well. And the greatest part of that influence is that we know Christ. We have that stability. We have an understanding of the gospel. We've placed our faith in the gospel and we are the recipients of, of the fruits and the gift of the gospel. And God desires that to use you and I in the sharing of the gospel with others. And maybe for some of us, maybe many, but maybe for some of us, we've allowed our opinions, our behaviors, our likes, our dislikes, 
to get in the way and to hinder the work of the gospel of Christ. What a shameful time that would be to have that revealed to you or to, reveal, to be revealed to me from the Lord. I am convinced that there are people in my past that I have hindered. I have hindered the work of the gospel. The more I think about that, the more I hate that. I detest that. I would want to go back and undo that. And, and I can't. We have, to, we have to live with our sin. We have to live with the consequence of our sin unless God is merciful. I know that I am forgiven and I thank God for that. I'm grateful for that. But we must also learn from our sin. And I don't want to be in that position again. I fear that I probably will from time to time. I just hope it's a whole lot less often than before. But I want to begin to think in these terms. I find myself doing so a little more each year of my life as a Christian. A little more, I find myself maybe biting my tongue, not saying things because I'm trying to think in the future. And what I mean by that is not are they going to like me, but are they going to hear me? Whether it's presenting the gospel or maybe just simply inviting them to church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this very simple sentence that has been uttered by Paul, which does carry with it a great deal of weight. I pray, Lord, that for all of us here, that we will think often throughout this day and this week, and perhaps, Father, maybe a permanent part of our thinking, to think in the way that, that Paul has encouraged these Corinthians to think, to think in terms of the message that we carry with us wherever we go. And that we are commanded here by you to be imitators of Paul, to be imitators of Christ, to view our lives and the recognized Lord that you've called us to do and to be a part of this work. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we have hindered the work of the gospel, whether it's been in the lives of our own children or the lives of maybe a dear friend. And then, of course, maybe countless others of those that have passed through our life that we were acquainted with maybe for a few years. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would sober us up in that sense and cause us to think in a new way. We thank you, Lord, that we're not condemned because of our past failures. We look forward, Father, to how you may use us in the lives of others. I pray, Lord, that each of us will be able to experience the great, incredible joy of being used by you in helping and enabling another person to come to understand the light of the truth of Christ and to believe in the gospel of Jesus. What a marvelous thing that is. Thank you, Father, for those who you used in our lives to do the same. Father, we do ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.